All right. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Great. So, for those that are joining us in, uh, for the first time, just want to reiterate just a welcome. Welcome to our church. Welcome to uh, our community, to our family. We're continuing in our fall series called Foundations of the New Testament Church. And if you were with us uh, last week, we were taking a look at some of the more fundamental things of the church today and how the early church kind of functioned. And we want to come closer to what the, the early church first looked like. And so as we look at the early church, as, we, as I spoke about it last week, we said the church was deeply relational. As Acts chapter 4 describes it, that all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. That's a very radical way of living, right? When I was in seminary, um, this way of living was actually very, very popular. I was doing my seminary in Chicago at Moody, and there were several, several houses in communities that lived intentionally this way. There was one called The Simple Way out in Philadelphia, one called Riva that was in Chicago, and we had the opportunity to check out these communities. And the way that they were living was completely radical. Everybody pooled their salaries into one pot. Isn't that crazy? So it didn't matter if you were a janitor or if you were a doctor, all your salaries came to one place and they shared everything. They shared their cars, they shared their housing, they shared everything was community-oriented and everything was community-based. That's radical living, right? That's how the early church lived. I mean, I remember visiting them and I was like, whoa, these guys are hippies. Like, completely weird people. Like, why would you live this way? It doesn't make sense, but in so many ways, what this community did was that it really did impact those communities that they were in. Most of the time, these intentional Christian communities, as they were called, were in the poorest neighborhoods in the, in the cities. And so the resources that they pooled together was there to help out the community. They took the money that was extra, and they said, how do we actually build infrastructure in the community that the government in the city is not building into? They gave into school systems. They gave into single mom systems. They gave into all these different things to help out that community that they were part of. And what they did was that influence these communities in a way that the city never was able to, to, to tackle. But is that sustainable for all Christians? Some, some ways, yes. If this is a lifestyle you choose, I encourage you to do that. But in other ways, we need to be able to live in a place where we're, we're called. We live in a place where Jesus has called us to live. And so we want to continue to unpack that. I don't want to radicalize everybody's thinking. I don't want you guys to be radicals in that way. But I want you to be radical in the way that you are going after Jesus' heart. Okay? We know that the early church, as we spoke last week, were devoted to four things. To the teachings of the apostles, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. All of these things that were part of the church grew the church, but the foundation started from what? The cornerstone. The cornerstone, which is Jesus. What is a cornerstone? That's a weird terminology of why, why do we call Jesus the cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone was the principal stone usually placed at the corner of 
all edifices. It's, the cornerstone was used to guide the workers on their course. The cornerstone was usually the largest and the most solid and the most carefully constructed of any edifice. The Bible describes Jesus as the cornerstone and that his church will be built upon. He is the foundational he is the foundation. Once the cornerstone was set, it became the basis for determining every measurement in the remaining construction. Everything was aligned to it as the cornerstone of the building of the church. Jesus is our standard, our measurement, and our alignment. That's why Jesus is called the cornerstone of the church. Therefore, when we are looking at what the church is and what the church is about, we have to first look at Jesus. Jesus sets the mission, the vision, the purpose of the church. And we're going to dive into that more today, but before we go into that, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you're doing uh, in this church and in our lives. And Father God, may you send your spirit down as we continue to take a look at what your word says and what your word calls out your church to be. So Lord, this morning we ask for your spirit to fall We ask for your blessings to come. We ask for your wisdom and your discernment to come into this place as we look into your word. So Lord, we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Jesus is the cornerstone. So we need to look at Jesus as setting the stage for all of us, for this church, for five stones to to be the church of Jesus Christ. We need to build everything on Jesus. So what is Jesus' first public ministry? Jesus started his ministry, and he called everyone to do one thing. What is that? It's to repent. Matthew 4.12, it says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus starts his initial ministry, and he calls everybody into repentance. In Luke 5.32, it says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Okay, we're going to come back to this verse, but Jesus' ministry was about what? Repentance. So we need to look at what, what this calling is about. In our modern understanding of repentance, oftentimes we associate it with confession. Even in the dictionary, the word repentance is defined as to feel deep remorse for our wrongdoing. This is not a wrong translation, but it's not complete. The church often calls us to repentance, to turn from our wicked ways, but the expression of repentance often comes up as just confession. While confession is a part of repentance and is an expression of repentance, it's not what repentance is about. Let's look at what repentance is. The word repent is, it comes from the Greek word metanoeo. Meta means to change or, to, or for movement. Meta, change, movement. You'll see that in a lot of anything that needs to be changed. You'll see meta as the, as the first part of the word. And this, the second part of the word noeo means to experience it's the mind the thoughts, our perceptions, our disposition, and our purpose. So the word metanoeo is to experience a change of our mind, perception, disposition, and purpose. It's an experience. Repentance 
is an experience. Keep that in your mind, okay? Repentance is not just a behavioral change. It's an inner change. When we change the inside of our, be- when we change our insides, our behavior will naturally change. But if we just try to change our behavior, that will just eventually lead us to a place of bitterness and disappointment. Inward change bears new fruit. And that is what Jesus is asking us to do. He calls us to repentance isn't just about changing our behavior. It's calling us to have a complete overall of all that we are. Everything that we are. Repentance is about changing our perception of life. How we live the truth and the life. Jesus says, run to me, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, change your mind to follow me instead of, instead of following what the world tells you to follow, instead of what society tells you to, to follow. Come to me, turn to me, confess that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Right? We know these verses. Now, the church around the second and third century took repentance, Jesus' command to go repent. And what the early church did was they brought it to a place of public confessions. So if you sinned or you did something wrong, they would, the, the church would drag you out into the, the front of the church and the community and ask you to confess. And you would publicly have to confess these things. And what that brought was shame. This is the absolute opposite of what Jesus meant as repentance. When Jesus calls us to repent, Jesus says, follow me and I will bear your sin and shame. However, what the church, what happened in the church is that confession became something of a mockery. Where they used confession to dissuade people from sinning. So, their, their, their heart behind it was, if you confess to the public, therefore you're repenting. But for others to see that this is what happens when you sin. And so you don't want to sin because if you sin, you're going to have to come up front to everybody and you're going to be publicly shamed. And so that's, that's what happened to repentance. That's what's, ha- what's happened to confession. And as the church continued to do it this way, we, we started seeing the church realizing that shame actually doesn't bring a change in our lifestyle. What shame brings, it brings us to a place of hiding. It brings us to a place where we actually don't want to be part of something because we don't want shame to be attached to it. And Jesus said that what I come to die for is to take you away from shame. And so when the church began to do this, it began to revolve everything about repentance into confession. So as the church continued in that direction, they realized, oh, maybe public shaming is actually not a good thing. Wow, what a revelation. And so the church began to take on a different approach in confession. What public shaming was used for was manipulation. It wasn't about transformation. It was about manipulating people to not do those things. But then what happened was they brought into these things called confessional booths, 
and made all the priests to swear like when confession happens that we keep it within ourselves. That we, we don't publicly shame people, but that we, we take in that information and that's where the, the aspect of confession, confessional booths came, came from. And what happened out of that was, yes, now we're not public about it, but manipulation continued to happen within confession. And actually it became worse because the priest began to take advantage of those private times. And when those private times happen, sin continued where the priests were taking advantage of the people that was coming to confession. They used their power to manipulate people into doing things for them, into submitting to the priests. These are reasons why people don't like the church. These are reasons why people are afraid to come to the church because when they come to the church, they feel that they're shamed. They feel that when we come, we have, we have to be a certain way. You know that aspect of society portrays the church and people that go to church? You know how we actually get to see that? We get to see that in media, okay? We get to see that in our TV shows. We get to see that portrayed in the Brady Bunch. We get to see that portrayed as Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. We get to see how society sees church sees Christians as people that have everything together, that they only do good, and that they are goody two-shoes. But where does that actually come from? That actually comes from a place of shame. It doesn't come from a place of repentance. It comes from a place of shame. What, what our church culture has developed is it's developed this thing of hiding our shame and putting out a new front for everybody to see. That we need to be this way. This is what society tells us. This is even what the church tells us. Is that we need to put out a good front for people to see. And that is what Christians are. What that does is it just disguises all the sin and the shame that is behind all of that. But Jesus doesn't. That's not what Jesus' ministry was about. If you looked at what Jesus' ministry was about. Jesus went to the people that were hurting. He calls out sinners to come to the church. The church is a place for sinners. He says, I didn't call for the righteous to come. I called for the sinners to come. Who are the sinners? It's every single person on this earth. If you think that you're not a sinner, then there's something very deeply wrong. Jesus says, I'm calling the sinners to come. Not the righteous, the sinners. This is where you belong. The sinners are the ones that should, be, should feel comfortable to come to a church. Yet in our society, people don't feel comfortable to come because they think that I'm not good enough to come to church. Church is a place where people have everything together. That they have 2.5 kids and a dog. That everything is perfect. And that we speak in, a, in, in these weird terminologies and we talk in, in, in these weird ways. All of that is just a facade to hide shame. All of that is just a facade to hide sin. We have seen so many, so many pastors fall. Why? Because there's this pressure to live this outward life of this is what a Christian is. And therefore, even as pastors, they, can, they cannot live authentically themselves. Pastors fall because, yes, we're human too. We fall into temptation. We fall into these things. But there's this pressure 
that the church needs and needs to look a certain way, needs to be a certain way. But what Jesus calls us to do is repent first. Before anything, repent first. This is the, this is the baseline to be a Christian. Repent. Come into a place of changing your mind and changing your perceptions by changing who you are from the inside. Not just a behavioral change, but to change from the inside. When the church was calling people to confess, oftentimes we saw that this is where the church hurt people the most. I'll give you an example, not a very ancient history one. Over the last couple of months, as we know, the Canadian system has really exposed the residential school system in Canada here. And it exposed the heinous crimes that, the residential, that happened at the residential schools. And these residential schools were actually started by the church. These residential schools were started by a place of faith. But it wasn't about faith. It was about domination. It was about genocide. It was about taking the Indian out of the child. And as I began to read a lot of these residential school survivors, oftentimes, oftentimes, it was in confession. So as the kids did something wrong, they would be sent to the priest to confess something. And it was in those times that abuse happened. That the priest took advantage. That they either sexually or physically abused these kids to a place where some of these kids actually died. That's where we're finding all these graves across Canada. And now these graves don't even represent the amount of deaths that happen in the indigenous community. This is something that's very real and this is something that's, that's happened and no wonder the indigenous community doesn't want anything to do with the church. I wouldn't want anything to do with the church if that happened to my community. The church was misrepresented because what the church did was it came in and instead of actually ministering to people the way Jesus did to call people to repentance, they took advantage and abused the indigenous community of our our country. And as a church, I believe that we need to begin the process of reconciliation. As a church, it's five stones. Yes, no, we haven't done any other things in the residential school, but we represent the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? So because we represent the church of Jesus Christ, we have the responsibility to make things right with the indigenous community of, 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 our, of, of our country. Can we do that? Will we do that? This may not be everybody's call, but it is the church's call. When we look at repentance, repentance changes culture. Luke 5, 2 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. We need to allow people to have the space to come into their salvation. We need to allow people to come into a place where they get to experience Jesus. This is what the church is about. That as people walk into this building, as people walk into our church community, as people walk into this family, that they get to experience Jesus. 
that there's no sin and no shame that is upon them that they get to experience the glory of Jesus as they come into our community. That's what the church is about. That's what causes people to repent. That's what causes a life change is when we allow them to be themselves. Oftentimes the church is like, pray this prayer, be saved, now change your behavior. And if the behavior doesn't get changed right away, then you're no longer saved. Or that you're less of a Christian. Or that you're less of a follower, that you're less of a disciple. And that's just not true. As many of you know, I have a, I have a nine-month-old baby. She's pure joy for me. I love watching her grow up. My daughter starts off in life by drinking milk, right? That's nourishment for her. And as she grows older, she starts to eat some solids. So we introduce purees. We introduce soft foods for her. She still doesn't have any teeth. She's only nine months old right now. But she loves eating. She hates her milk right now. Every time she sees, if she has her bottle and she sees food, she's like, throw away the bottle, give me the food. But sometimes the food is she's not ready to eat it, right? Because she has no teeth. So it has to be soft foods. But as her teeth come in, then we could give her harder foods that she could actually gnaw on and, and, and digest in her mouth. And as she grows older, we could start introducing more flavorful stuff for her. That's the same for Christians. That when we come into salvation, we start off in a place where we need to come into understanding. And as Jesus works in our life, as we experience Jesus, we grow in our faith and we can take more and more. The church is one of the most judgmental places because when we have people come into faith, we expect them to have an immediate change, that they are from sinner to righteous in that second. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm just saying that our salvation and our our discipleship is a process. And the church needs to allow those processes to happen. The church needs to slow down a little bit instead of casting judgment right away that we extend mercy first, that we extend grace first, that we come to a place that we are like Jesus in the way that it's Jesus that causes us to change our life. The transformation comes and sometimes certain things happen fast and other times things happen slow. We can't expect things to happen right away all the time. That's just not how Christianity works. That's not how life works. When we look at people coming into Jesus, we need to have patience with them. We need to be able to to hold their hands and say, let me walk with you through this. Let me walk with you through this. Oftentimes we're raised, for those that are are raised in a church, I was raised in a church and then I kind of took my own thing and I did my own thing for a while. But oftentimes when we're raised in a church, we, 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 we are formed and shaped by what the leaders of that church have to say. 
I come from a rather conservative Chinese alliance church, right? For those that know the Chinese alliance system, know that it's pretty conservative. And that's actually the reason why I decided to leave the church is because it was so conservative. I just found, found myself constrained. It was all this, these rules and things saying, like, you can't do this, you can't do this. I'm like, maybe instead of telling me what I can't do, tell me what you, I can do, because the list seems to be a lot shorter. But that's what, that's what people's perception of the church is. It's just a list of cannot do's. Jesus wants us to have freedom in our, in, our, in, our, in our relationship with him. He wants us to be real with him. He wants us to be authentic with him. He wants us to be able to express the things that we're going through. And the church should be a place where we're allowed to do those things. The church should be a place where we're allowed to actually speak, these are my doubts, this is my process, this is where I'm at. But instead, the church shames us into a place of, no, you can't do that. So we start hiding some of our sins. Did you know that pornography is one of the sins that actually affect the church the most? Because it's one of those things that we could hide very easily. That pornography has completely come into our church system and it's, it's ruining marriages, it's ruining relationships, it's ruining our relationship with Jesus Christ, it's ruining our discipleship, it's ruining the time that we have to spend in prayer and in, in the word. That this dominates the minds of our culture these days. 85% of men watch porn, 70% of women watch pornography and that's the same statistic in the church. It's not different. It's exactly the same. But all of these things are hidden because we're expected to live perfect already. But if we were to expose these things, the church will start to look very different. Healing could come into those places and and transformation could actually start happening because if we're able to speak about these things and talk about these things, Of course, we're going to start keeping each other accountable for these things. When you have accountability, transformation comes and follows that. That's what the church is about. I want our church to be in a place where we're able to speak of our our sin and our shame so that we bring it into the light and we expose these things. Instead of judgment coming in, grace falls in. Instead of judgment coming in, mercy falls in because that's the way that Jesus would minister to us. So Jesus calls us to change our lifestyle. And to change our lifestyles requires this community. It requires the church to do something different. It requires the church to change our mind in terms of how we are seeing the things of our society. Instead of being against something, let's be for Jesus. The church is against too many things. We are protesting things that don't matter. And we are not fighting for the things that do matter. So I want us to come back to that place of Jesus calling us, repent. Bring that out as your initial message to anybody. Come into a place where you change your mind, but allow the spirit to work in your mind to, to, to mold you into something that is more Christ-like. You cannot do this on your own. It's not for you to do this on your own. 
As I said, the church is, brings much more judgment than it does anything else. But in Romans 2, it says this. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practices the very same thing. And then in verse four, it says, is that, the, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is what the church is supposed to do. The church needs to extend the kindness of Jesus. It needs to extend the kindness of, of, of God. It's because the kindness of God, what comes with kindness, mercy and grace and love, falls. That's what kindness brings. When you extend that first, then repentance comes. Not judgment, but this is the way that we've been doing things and how the church has been doing things. We've gone it all backwards. Harvard recently elected its kind of president of, of the, oh, what's that called? Not the clergy, the chaplains. So they elected a new chaplain for Harvard University, and that chaplain is an atheist. The Christian community was all up in arms, saying this is not right, this is We cannot have an atheist as head of chaplaincy in Harvard. Why why are Christians in the church fighting against that when chaplaincy has nothing to do with Christianity? The chaplains in Harvard represent all faiths. There are different chaplains for different faiths across the campus, so why does it need to be a Christian standing in that place when the chaplains represent all an interfaith aspect of the school, it doesn't need a Christian. We're fighting for the wrong thing. We're fighting and protesting wrong thing. As Christians, instead of seeing an atheist come into the head of chaplaincy, we need to learn to live in an interfaith community where we understand that there are many beliefs out there. Yes, we believe in Jesus Christ, but we need to extend, what? The kindness of Jesus for people to come into that belief, instead of protesting it, instead of getting all up in arms about it, instead of being worked up about that, see that that place doesn't belong to Christians, but Christians can intersect in that place, and we can make influence in those places. We see this all wrong. We, we, we look at it and we, we, we feel threatened. Christians always feel threatened, right? We feel threatened that, oh, this is going to, to change the society that we live in. Well, instead of feeling threatened, let's do something different. Let's be active in showing kindness to people. Instead of going against something, show kindness. Because that's where the conversation is going to begin. And then, then you could actually bring Jesus into the conversation. We don't need to fight the way that we fight. We need to extend the love of Jesus before we do anything else. We need to give grace. We need to give mercy. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's what I want you guys to do. I want everybody in Five Stones to change their mind. Be on that process of repentance and see that the Lord is good. 
That God has all of these things. That God sees all of these situations. That God understands that my gay cousin needs Jesus. He's like, I see him. But instead of telling him to stop being gay, just tell him that God loves you. Just as you are. And then allow God to work in his life and allow the Holy Spirit to change his life. Stop telling people they're wrong. Start telling people about Jesus' love. That's what the church should be doing. If the church could extend more kindness, mercy, and less judgment, people will experience Jesus. You know what a great way of people to experience Jesus is? Pray for them. Next week we're going to talk about prayer. Pastor Rich is going to bring that message. Pray for them. Before you do anything else, just say, can I pray for you? I know you don't believe. I know you don't have that faith, but I do. Can I pray for you? Can I bring Jesus into this situation and allow you to experience the miracle of Jesus? Start there. Because Jesus started there. How did Jesus draw the crowds? He performed miracles. He prayed for people. Do the same thing. Our repentance is to run to Jesus and allow Jesus to begin setting the foundations of our own faith. Take authority over your own life in the sense of allowing Jesus to dictate your theology instead of what you've learned growing up. Allow Jesus to shape you. Allow Jesus to move you. Allow Jesus to lead and guide you. Not everybody is going to change in an instant. We have actually some, we do have some miracle stories here in the church of people changing in an instant. But from my personal experience, salvation, my discipleship, is a process that we transform our mind. And I've used this analogy many times. But growing up, I was a very angry, angry kid, just full of anger. Anything could set me off. I always wanted to pick fights with people and everything was against me. It was all of that. When I came to know Jesus, I was still an angry person. Things didn't change right away. I would say the wrong things. I would do the wrong things. I'd still be cussing people out. Things didn't really change in an instant. But as I got to know Jesus, one of the things that because of my upbringing, I thought, oh, I just need to suppress the anger. I just need to suppress it, right? Be a good Christian, suppress the anger. What that caused in me was bitterness. I went into a place where I just hated everybody. On the outside, I was friendly, but on the inside, I just hated everybody. And I'm just like, Jesus, if you're going to transform me, you have to deal with my anger issues. You have to deal with this, this problem that I'm, 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 I'm constantly feeling, these emotions that I'm constantly feeling. I'm like, Jesus, why would you give me this problem if you want me to minister to your people? Jesus is like, anger isn't your issue. Anger is an emotion that I've given you. You're just directing it in the wrong place. You're directing it towards people instead of causes. Be angry about causes. Be angry about 
justice issues. Look at things that are happening in the world that's wrong and be angry towards those things because I'm angry towards those things. And when Jesus started redirecting those things, my anger issues actually started towards people, started to go away. And my anger actually started being directed to, to places where I see injustice being happen. That's what we're called to do. That's how transformation happens. He's not going to take the things that are wrong of you and just be like, oh, I'm going to pluck that out. No, because he's like, I've, I created you in a certain way. I created you and I put everything in you. It's just sometimes these things are directed at the wrong things. And so that's what transformation looks like. That you don't lose any part of yourself, that you just transform into more of who he is and his heart is about. That's where we want to lead this church. But understand that this is a process. Not everyone may understand what Jesus is doing in this moment in your life. But we need to be a place, a church that that cultivates a culture that allows us to go through that process. That we're all in different places in our journey and we have different struggles. And those that have gone through certain struggles can mentor those that are going through it now. That's what strengthens this community. This is what will bring people into who Jesus is. So as we look at the church with Jesus as the cornerstone. We need to extend the same thing that Jesus extended, which is his kindness. We need to build everything off of him. We need to align ourselves on everything that Jesus has given us. It's all about him, it will always be about him, and it will remain with him all the time. This is the gospel. This is the good news. So church, I challenge you in your process of repentance. What does that look like? What are things in, in your life that you feel like I actually need a reorganization in, in my life? Because I've allowed either tradition or I've allowed church church authorities or I've allowed certain things come into my mind to set my mind in a certain place instead of allowing Jesus to set my mind into that certain place. Instead of having Jesus' mind and Jesus' heart, I have the heart of what everybody has put into me. Whether it is the world, whether it is the church, whether it is your parents. I lived off of my parents' faith for a very long time. I lived off my parents' understanding of, 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 of Jesus Christ for a very long time. But I challenge you to come to a place of repentance. Daily, come to a place of repentance. And say, Jesus, what do you have to say in, the, in, in whatever I'm struggling with? Or whatever I'm dealing with? Or whatever I'm challenged with? Can we do that, church? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for your spirit for coming into our lives. And Lord, as we strive to be your church, may we come to a place of changing our mind to be more like yours. Father God, may we 
change our minds to take in more of your characteristics. So Father God, may you send your spirit. May you encourage us with your spirit. May you encourage your church to do things the way that you want us to do things. So Lord, may we as your church bring glory to you heart, to, to who you are, and may we be the agents of change in our communities. And Lord, we thank you and we give all praise and honor to you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, Pastor John took on a massive subject this morning. A lot of territory that he covered. want to make some, maybe a little bit of an extended reflection here. The two greatest repentance preachers in the Bible were John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. 400 years of prophetic voice was silent between Malachi and Matthew. And then when John the Baptist came thundering in the desert, preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the throngs of multitudes went out to him. There's something about the way he preached repentance that drew people to God. It wasn't like the Pharisees and Sadducees. He was strong on holiness, and you had to get right with God. Shortly after John the Baptist's ministry, short, got beheaded, Jesus came and he preached the exact same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As if a second message could not be deeper or more powerful, Jesus came and brought it, and he preached repentance as well. John came at it from the holiness aspect. Jesus came at it from the kindness aspect. In fact, the thing that caused John the Baptist to almost stumble, the last question that he asked of the Lord before he was beheaded was, are you the one to come? When John the Baptist was the one that introduced Jesus to the nation of Israel and said, this is the Lamb of God. And now, as he saw the ministry of Jesus, he was confused. What's going on? Are you actually the one? When he had the revelation, he was privileged to have the revelation. Both were preaching repentance in a very powerful way. And where the church has gone wrong in how we preach repentance is preaching holiness without love. We need to preach holiness. We need to preach righteousness. We need to preach that you need to turn from God. If there is no impetus of our condition and how bad it is, there is no impetus for us to go towards God. Repentance is a doorway into freedom and forgiveness and newness and new creation, not into guilt and shame. And so when we preach repentance according to holiness in the right way, we run to God because he's the solution, not the one that's putting the hammer on us. And when Jesus came, he just accentuated that. And Jesus was a holiness preacher. He said to many people, stop your sinning. But there was such a sense of love within him that when he preached repentance, people felt accepted and not rejected. And that's what we need to do as a church. We need to preach repentance and holiness and righteousness, but with the love of God. I've always said repentance is the hardest message to preach because you have to inhabit and assimilate the very heart of God. Human nature, it's so easy to just condemn people. Oh, you're a sinner. You're this and that. Don't say that until you really have the love of God in your heart. And then people will receive the message. Children receive 
that correction from their parents because they know the parents love them. It really calls for wisdom. John really brought out this aspect of process and how repentance is a process. And it, indeed it is. And repentance is also an event. The Bible says that when Peter preached on Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved at that moment. They repented. It was an event. But of course, they continue to grow in their faith. And so there's event and there's process. And wisdom says we need to discern when someone is walking in their process with God, whether it's that event moment or that process moment. It's not all process. It's not all event. It's both. We have to hold it in tension. In fact, the cross is a perfect picture of the theological tension that we have to hold. There's always a vertical component, and there's always a horizontal component. The process is the horizontal component. And the event is that vertical component. You are a new creation in Christ. You're not going to be called a child of God after 10 years, after you get better. No, at the moment you receive Jesus Christ, you are now a child of God. Now, the situation with Harvard was a very interesting thing. Do you know that Harvard is the number one university, not only by reputation, it was the first university established in the United States. And it was established as a Christian university. The whole purpose was to train, educate, and send out missionaries. So here we are, 350 years later, and Harvard has moved to a place of great secularism. They don't represent the truth of God anymore. They're anti-God. And so for those people who are up in arms about the chaplain, if Harvard has disavowed their Christian heritage, then it makes sense. But if they have not disavowed their Christian heritage, it makes no sense. And Christians should be up in arms. But Christians should not be up in arms if Harvard has said, no, we don't believe in this anymore. Then you do what you need to do. So we need wisdom. We need discernment in this hour. But repentance is meant to be a doorway to newness of life. It's not our enemy. It's our friend. And that's what broke God's heart when Adam sinned in the garden, is that he went and he hid, like Pastor John said, because of the shame. But God's like, no, when you come back to me, I will lift the shame. I'm not going to make it worse for you. So, Father, we thank you that we are getting a fresh picture, a renewed picture of what repentance is. And how we need to have wisdom from you to be led by the Holy Spirit to preach the kindness of God, to preach the holiness of God. Only your spirit knows the heart of a man or a woman and what they need in that moment. So come and fill us, Lord God, so that this can be a place of flourishing, not a place where people stay away from, but they come because it's where they will be accepted and loved by you. Lord, it's a place where we exalt the great work of Jesus on the cross. There is no sin that no one has ever committed that cannot be forgiven by you. And we celebrate the power of Calvary. We thank you now. Let your peace be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week. We will see you next Sunday.